Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Crown Derby Plate by Marjorie Bowen. Martha Pym said that she had never seen a ghost and that she would very much like to do so, particularly at Christmas, for you can laugh as you like. That is the correct time to see a ghost. I don't suppose you ever will, replied her cousin Mabel comfortably, while her cousin Clara shuddered and said that she hoped they would change the subject, for she disliked even to think of such things. The three elderly cheerful women sat around the big fire, cosy and content, after a day of pleasant activities. Martha was the guest of the other two, who owned a handsome, convenient country house. She always came to spend her Christmas with the Wintons and found the leisurely country life delightful after the bustling round of London, for Martha managed an antique shop of the better sort and worked extremely hard. She was, however, still full of zest for work or pleasure, though sixty years old and looked backwards and forwards to a succession of delightful days. The other two, Mabel and Clara, led quieter but nonetheless agreeable lives. They had more money and fewer interests, but nevertheless enjoyed themselves very well. Talking of ghosts, said Mabel, I wonder how that old woman at Hartley's is getting on. For Hartley's, you know, is supposed to be haunted. Yes, I know, smiled Miss Pym. But all the years that we have known of the place, we have never heard anything definite, have we? No, put in Clara, but there is that persistent rumour that the house is uncanny. And for myself, nothing would induce me to live there. It's certainly very lonely and dreary down there on the marshes, conceded Mabel. But as for the ghost, you never hear what it's supposed to be, even. Who has taken it? asked Miss Pym remembering Hartley's as very desolate indeed, and long shut up. A Miss Lefane, an eccentric old creature. I think you met her here once, uh, two years ago. Uh, I believe that I did, but I don't recall her at all. We haven't seen her since. Hartley's is so ungettable, and she doesn't seem to want visitors. She collects china, Martha, so really you ought to go and see her and talk shop. With the word china, some curious associations came into the mind of Martha Pym. She was silent while she strove to put them together, and after a second or two they all fitted together into a very clear picture. She remembered that thirty years ago, yes, it must be thirty years ago, when as a young woman she had put all her capital into the antique business and had been staying with her cousins, her aunt had been then alive, that she had driven across the marsh to Hartley's, where there was an auction sale. All the details of this she had completely forgotten, but she could recall quite clearly purchasing a set of gorgeous china which was still one of her proud delights, a perfect set of crown derby, save that one plate was missing. How odd, she remarked, that this Miss Lefane should collect china too, for it was at Hartley's that I purchased my old dear derby service. I've never been able to match that plate. A plate was missing, I seem to remember, said Clara. Did they say that it must be in the house somewhere, and that it should be looked for? I believe they did, but of course I never heard any more, and that missing plate has annoyed me ever since. Who had Hartley's? An old connoisseur, Sir James Sewell. I believe he was some relation to this Miss Lefane, but I don't know. I wonder if she's found the plate, mused Miss Pym. 
I expect she has turned out and ransacked the whole place. Why not trot over and ask, suggested Mabel. It's not much use to her, if she has found it. One odd plate. Don't be silly, said Clara. Fancy going over the marshes this weather to ask about a plate missed all those years ago. I'm sure Martha wouldn't think of it. But Martha did think of it. She was rather fascinated by the idea. How queer and pleasant it would be if, after all these years, nearly a lifetime, she should find the crown derby plate, the loss of which had always irked her. And this hope did not seem so altogether fantastical. It was quite likely that old Miss Lefane, poking about in the ancient house, had found the missing piece. And, of course, if she had, being a fellow collector, she would be quite willing to part with it to complete the set. Her cousin endeavoured to dissuade her. Miss Lefane, she declared, was a recluse, an odd creature, who might greatly resent such a visit and such a request. Well, if she does, I can but come away again, smiled Miss Pym. I suppose she can't bite my head off, and I rather like meeting these curious types. We've got a love for old China in common anyhow. It seems so silly to think of it after all these years. A plate, a crown derby plate, corrected Miss Pym. It's certainly strange that I didn't think of it before, but now that I've got it into my head, I can't get it out. Besides, she added hopefully, I might see the ghost. So full, however, were the days with pleasant local engagements that Miss Pym had no immediate chance of putting her scheme into practice, but she did not relinquish it, and she asked several different people what they knew about Hartley's and Miss Lefane. And no one knew anything, save that the house was supposed to be haunted, and the owner, Cracky. Is there a story? asked Miss Pym, who associated ghosts with neat tails into which they fitted as exactly as nuts into shells. But she was always told, Oh no, there isn't a story. No one knows anything about the place. Don't know how the idea got about. Old Sewell was half crazy, I believe. He was buried in the garden, and that gives a house a nasty name. Very unpleasant, said Martha Pym, undisturbed. This ghost seemed too elusive for her to track down. She would have to be content if she could recover the crown derby plate. For that, at least, she was determined to make a try, and also to satisfy that faint tingling of curiosity roused in her by this talk about Hartley's and the remembrance of that day so long ago when she had gone to the auction sale at the lonely old house. So, the first free afternoon, while Mabel and Clara were comfortably taking their afternoon repose, Martha Pym, who was of a more lively habit, got out her little governess cart and dashed away across the Essex flats. She had taken minute directions with her, but she had soon lost her way. Under the wintry sky, which looked as grey and hard as metal, the marshes stretched bleakly to the horizon. The olive-brown broken reeds were harsh as scars on the saffron-tinted bogs where the sluggish waters that rose so high in winter were filmed over with the first stillness of a frost. The air was cold, but not keen. Everything was damp. Faintest of mists blurred the black outlines of trees that rose stark from the ridges above the stagnant dikes. The flooded fields were haunted by black birds and white birds, gulls and crows, whining above the long ditch grass and wintry wastes. Miss Pym stopped the little horse and surveyed this spectral scene, which had a certain relish about it to one sure to return to a homely village, a cheerful house, a good company. A withered and bleached old man, 
in colour like the dun landscape, came along the road between the sparse alders. Miss Pym, buttoning up her coat, asked the way to Hartley's. As he passed her, he told her, straight on, and she proceeded straight indeed across the road that went with undeviating length across the marshes. Of course, thought Miss Pym, if you live in a place like this, you're bound to invent ghosts. The house sprang up suddenly on a knoll ringed with rotting trees, encompassed by an old brick wall that the perpetual damp had overrun with lichen, blue, green, white colours of decay. Hartley's, no doubt. There was no other residence of human being in sight in all the wide expanse. Besides, she could remember it surely after all this time, the sharp rising out of the marsh, the colony of tall trees. But then fields and trees had been green and bright. There had been no water on the flats. It had been summertime. She certainly thought Miss Pym must be crazy to live here, and I rather doubt if I shall get my plate. She fastened up the good little horse by the garden gate which stood negligently ajar, and entered. The garden itself was so neglected that it was surprising to see a trim appearance in the house, curtains at the window, and a polish on the brass door-knocker, which must have been recently rubbed there, considering the taint in the sea-damp, which rusted and rotted everything. It was a square-built, substantial house, with nothing wrong with it but the situation, Miss Pym decided, though it was not very attractive. Being built of that drab plastered stone so popular a hundred years ago, with flat windows and door, while one side was gloomily shaded by a large evergreen tree of the cypress variety, which gave a blackish tinge to that portion of the garden. There was no pretense at flower beds, nor any manner of cultivation in this garden, where a few rank weeds and straggling bushes matted together above the dead grass. On the enclosing wall, which appeared to have been built high as protection against the ceaseless winds that swung along the flats, were the remains of fruit trees, their crucified branches rotting under the great nails that held them up looked like the skeletons of those who had died in torment. Miss Pym took in these noxious details as she knocked firmly at the door. They didn't depress her. She merely felt extremely sorry for anyone who could live in such a place. She noticed at the far end of the garden, in the corner of the wall, a headstone showing above the sodden, colourless grass, and remembered what she had been told about the old antiquary being buried there in the grounds of Hartley's. As the knock had no effect, she stepped back and looked at the house. It was certainly inhabited, with those neat windows, white curtains and drab blinds all pulled to precisely the same level. And when she brought her glance back to the door, she saw that it had been opened, and that someone, considerably obscured by the darkness of the passage, was looking at her intently. "'Good afternoon,' said Miss Pym cheerfully. "'I just thought I would call to see Miss Lefane. "'It is Miss Lefane, isn't it?' "'It's my house,' was the querulous reply. "'Martha Pym had hardly expected to find any servants here, "'though the old lady must, she thought, work pretty hard "'to keep the house so clean and tidy as it appeared to be. Uh, "'Of course,' she replied. "'May I come in? "'I'm Martha Pym, staying with the Wintons. "'I met you there. "'Do come in,' was the faint reply. "'I get so few people to visit me. "'I'm really very lonely.' "'I don't wonder.' thought Miss Pym, but she had resolved to take no notice of any eccentricity on the part of her hostess, 
and so she entered the house with her usual agreeable candour and courtesy. The passage was badly lit, but she was able to get a fair idea of Miss Lefane. Her first impression was that this poor creature was most dreadfully old, older than any human being had the right to be. Why, she felt young in comparison, so faded, feeble and pallid was Miss Lefane. She was also monstrously fat. Her gross, flaccid figure was shapeless, and she wore a badly cut, full dress of no colour at all, but stained with earth and damp, where Miss Pym supposed she had been doing futile gardening. This gown was doubtless designed to disguise her stoutness, but had been so carelessly pulled about that it only added to it being rocked and rolled all over the place, as Miss Pym put it to herself. Another ridiculous touch about the appearance of the poor old lady was her short hair, decrepit as she was, and lonely as she lived, she had actually had her scanty relics of white hair cropped round her shaking head. Timmy, Timmy, she said in her thin, treble voice, how very kind of you to come. I, I suppose you prefer the parlour. I, I generally sit in the garden. The garden? But not in this weather. I get used to the weather. You've no idea how used one gets to the weather. I suppose so, conceded Miss Pym doubtfully. You don't live here quite alone, do you? Quite alone lately. I had a little company, but she was taken away. I'm sure I don't know where. I haven't been able to find a trace of her anywhere, replied the old lady peevishly. Some wretched companion that couldn't stick it, I suppose, thought Miss Pym well. I don't wonder, but someone ought to be here to look after her. They went into the parlour, which the visitor was dismayed to see was without a fire, but otherwise well kept. And there, on dozens of shelves, was a choice array of china, at which Martha Pym's eyes glistened. Aha! cried Miss Lefane. I see you've noticed my treasures. Don't you envy me? Don't you wish that you had some of those pieces. Martha Pym certainly did, and she looked eagerly and greedily round the walls, tables and cabinets, while the old woman followed her with little thin squeals of pleasure. It was a beautiful little collection, most choicely and elegantly arranged, and Martha thought it marvellous that this feeble ancient creature should be able to keep it in such precise order as well as doing her own housework. Do you really do everything yourself here, and live quite alone? she asked, and she shivered, even in her thick coat, and wished that Miss Lefane's energy had risen to a fire, but then she probably lived in the kitchen as these lonely eccentrics often did. There was someone, answered Miss Lefane cunningly, but I had to send her away. I told you she's gone. I can't find her. And I'm so glad. Of course, she added wistfully, it leaves me very lonely, but then I couldn't stand her impertinence any longer. She used to say that it was her house and her collection of china. Would you believe it? She used to try to chase me away from looking at my own things. How very disagreeable, said Miss Pym, wondering which of the two women had been crazy. But hadn't you better get someone else? Oh, no was a jealous answer. I would rather be alone with my things. I daren't leave the house for fear someone takes them away. 
There was a dreadful time once when an auction sale was held here. Were you here then? asked Miss Pym. But indeed, she looked old enough to have been anywhere. Yes, of course, Miss Lefane replied rather peevishly, and Miss Pym decided that she must be a relation of old Sir James Sewell. Clara and Mabel had been very foggy about it all. I was very busy hiding all the china, but one set they got a Crown Derby tea service. With one plate missing, cried Martha Pym. I bought it, and you know, I was wondering if you'd find it. I hid it, piped Miss Lefane. Oh, you did, did you? Well, that's rather funny behaviour. Why did you hide the stuff away instead of buying it? How could I buy what was mine? Old Sir James left it to you, then, asked Martha Pym, feeling very muddled. She bought a lot more, squeaked Miss Lefane, but Martha Pym tried to keep her to the point. If you've got the plate, she insisted, you might let me have it. I'll pay quite handsomely. It will be so pleasant to have it after all these years. Money's no use to me, said Miss Lefane mournfully. Not a bit of use. I can't leave the house or the garden. Well, you have to live, I suppose, replied Martha Pym cheerfully. And you know, I'm afraid you're getting rather morbid and dull living here all alone. You really ought to have a fire. Why, it's just on Christmas and very damp. I haven't felt the cold for a long time, replied the other. She seated herself with a sigh on one of the horsehair chairs, and Miss Pym noticed with a start that her feet were covered only by a pair of white stockings. One of those nasty health fiends, thought Miss Pym, but she doesn't look too well for all that. So, you don't think that you could let me have the plate? she asked briskly, walking up and down, for the dark, neat, clean parlour was very cold indeed, and she thought that she couldn't stand this much longer, as there seemed no sign of tea or anything pleasant and comfortable. She had really better go. I might let you have it, sighed Miss Lefane, since you've been so kind as to pay me a visit. After all, one plate isn't much use, is it? Of course not. I wonder why you trouble to hide it. I couldn't bear, well, the other, to see the things going out of the house. Martha Pym couldn't stop to go into all of this. It was quite clear that the old lady was very eccentric indeed, and that nothing very much could be done with her. No wonder that she had dropped out of everything, and that no one ever saw her and knew anything about her, though Miss Pym felt that some effort ought really to be made to save her from herself. "'Wouldn't you like a run in my little governess cart?' she suggested. "'We might go to tea with the Wintons on the way back. They'd be delighted to see you, and I really think that you do want taking out of yourself.' "'I was taken out of myself some time ago,' replied Miss Lefane. "'I really was.' and I couldn't leave my things, though, she added with pathetic gratitude. It is very, very kind of you. Your things would be quite safe, I'm sure, said Martha Pym, humouring her. Who would ever come up here this hour of a winter's day? They do, oh, they do. And she might come back, prying and nosing, and saying that it was all hers, all my beautiful china, hers. Miss Lefane squealed in her agitation, and rising up, ran round the wall, fingering with flaccid yellow hands the brilliant, glossy pieces on the shelves. Well, then, I'm afraid that I must go. They'll be expecting me, and it's quite a long ride. Perhaps some other time you'll come and see us. Oh, must you go? quavered Miss Lefane dolefully. I do like a little company now and then. 
and I trusted you from the first. The others, when they do come, are always after my things, and I have to frighten them away. Frighten them away, replied Martha Pym. However do you do that? It doesn't seem difficult. People are so easily frightened, aren't they? Miss Pym suddenly remembered that Hartley's had the reputation of being haunted. Perhaps the queer old thing played on that. The lonely house with the grave in the garden was dreary enough around which to create a legend. I suppose you've never seen a ghost, she asked pleasantly. I'd rather like to see one, you know. There's no one here but myself, said Miss Lefane. So you've never seen anything? I thought it must all be nonsense. Still, I do think it rather melancholy for you to live here all alone. Miss Lefane sighed. Yes, it's very lonely. Do stay and talk to me a little longer. Her whistling voice dropped cunningly. And I'll give you the Crown Derby plate. Are you sure you've really got it? Miss Pym asked. I'll show you. Fat and waddling as she was, she seemed to move very lightly as she slipped in front of Miss Pym and conducted her from the room going slowly up the stairs. Such a gross, odd figure in that clumsy dress with the fringe of white hair hanging onto her shoulders. The upstairs of the house was as neat as the parlour, everything well in its place, but there was no sign of occupancy. The beds were covered with dust sheets. There were no lamps or fires set ready. I suppose, said Miss Pym to herself, she doesn't care to show me where she really lives. But as they passed from one room to another, she couldn't help saying, Where do you live, Miss Lefane? Mostly in the garden, said the other. Miss Pym thought of those horrible health huts that some people indulged in. Well, sooner you than I, she replied cheerfully. In the most distant room of all, a dark, tiny closet, Miss Lefane opened a deep cupboard and brought out a crown derby plate, which her guest received with a spasm of joy, for it was actually that missing from her cherished set. It's very good of you, she said in delight. Won't you take something for it, or, or let me do something for you? You might come and see me again, replied Miss Lefane wistfully. Oh, yes, of course, I, I should like to come and see you again. But now that she had got what she had really come for, the plate, Martha Pym wanted to be gone. It was really very dismal and depressing in the house, and she began to notice a fearful smell. The place had been shut up too long. There was something damp rotting somewhere, in this horrid little dark closet, no doubt. I really must be going, she said hurriedly. Miss Lefane turned as if to cling to her, but Martha Pym moved quickly away. Dear me, wailed the old lady, why are you in such haste? There's a, a smell, murmured Miss Pym, rather faintly. She found herself hastening down the stairs with Miss Lefane complaining behind her. How peculiar people are. She used to talk of a smell. Well, you must notice it yourself. Miss Pym was in the hall. The old woman had not followed her, but stood in the semi-darkness at the head of the stairs, a pale, shapeless figure. Martha Pym hated to be rude and ungrateful, but she couldn't stay another moment. She hurried away, was in her cart in a moment. Really, that smell... Goodbye, she called out with false cheerfulness, and thank you so much. There was no answer from the house. Miss Pym drove on. She was rather upset and took another way than that by which she had come. 
a way that led past the little house raised above the marsh. She was glad to think that the poor old creature at Hartley's had such near neighbours, and she reined up the horse, dubious as to whether she should call someone and tell them that poor old Miss Lefane really wanted a little looking after alone in a house like that, and plainly not quite right in her head. A young woman, attracted by the sound of the governor's cart, came to the door of the house, and seeing Miss Pym called out, asking if she wanted the keys of the house. "'What house?' asked Miss Pym. "'Hartley's, Mum. They don't put a board out, as no one's likely to pass, but it's to be sold. Miss Lefane wants to sell it or let it. I've just been up to see her. Oh, no, Mum, she's been away a year, abroad somewhere. Couldn't stand the place. It's been empty since then. I just run in every day and keep things tidy.' Loquacious and curious, the young woman had come to the fence. Miss Pym had stopped her horse. "'Miss Lefane's there now,' she said. "'She must have just come back. "'She wasn't there this morning, Mum. "'Tisn't likely she'd come either. "'Fair scared she was, Mum. "'Fair chased away. "'Didn't dare move her china. "'Can't say I've noticed anything myself, "'but I never stay long. "'There's a smell.' "'Yes,' murmured Martha Pym faintly. "'There's a smell. "'What, what chased her away?' The young woman, even in that lonely place, lowered her voice. Well, as you aren't thinking of taking the place, she got an idea into her head that old Sir James, well, he couldn't bear to leave Hartley's mum. He's buried in the garden, and she thought he was after her, chasing round them bits of china. Oh, cried Miss Pym, some of it used to be his. She found a lot stuffed away. He said they were to be left in Hartley's, but Miss Lefane would have the things sold, I believe. That's years ago. Yes, yes, said Miss Pym with a sick look. You don't know what he was like, do you? No, Mum, but I've heard tell he was very stout and very old. I wonder who it was you saw up at Hartley's. Miss Pym took a crown derby plate from her bag. You might take that back when you go, she whispered. I shan't want it after all. Before the astonished young woman could answer, Miss Pym had darted off across the marsh. That short hair, that earth-stained robe, the white socks. I generally live in the garden. Miss Pym drove away, breakneck speed, frantically resolving to mention to no one that she had paid a visit to Hartley's, nor likely again to bring up the subject of ghosts. She shook and shuddered in the damp, trying to get out of her clothes and her nostrils that indescribable smell. Hi, this is Tony Walker. I would like to remind you that you can become a patron of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Patrons get access to the library of member-only stories and I'm doing a new member-only story at least once per month at the moment. You'll also get the joy of supporting me in the work so I can continue to produce the regular podcast. You can become a patron by signing up at www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. So if you did feel that you wanted to support my work, it will be great to have you on board at Patreon. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? 
You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? That was the Crown Derby plight by Marjorie Bowen. And this story was recommended, suggested by Yimi Tong back in October 2021, so I'm slowly getting round to suggestions in no systematic manner. I'm just going down the list, and if a name jumps out, I'll go, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, I try to do them in roughly some order. Anyways, you know, if you're a member of the podcast, you can suggest a story, and I will do it at some point. We've done a Marjorie Bone story before, The Housekeeper, a little while ago. And the podcast's been going about two and a half, just short of three years now. And so inevitably we're going to have done some authors more than once. That doesn't mean there aren't authors out there we've never done that we should do. Marjorie Bowen was born in Hailing Island in Hampshire in November 1885, and she died aged 67 in Kensington in London. She was quite a modern woman, though. She was a professional author, and her main reputation, perhaps these days, is the supernatural stories, but at the time... And, and still to these days is historical romances, Nell Gwynn and all that kind of thing. And she was very well received. And when we, we look at this story, we see two things, really. The language is very modern and the structure of it, it's very nicely written. The only problem I have with reading is it's sometimes she uses semicolons when she should use. It's totally legit to do this, but for reading a full stop would be easier for me because I can see it as a run on where in fact it's a completely new sentence and needs a breath and a pause. But there we go, that's a technical issue. And while we're on technical issues, before we re- return back to the life of Marjorie Bowen, I must apologise for um, two, th- well, the, the, the choices I made, so I don't know whether I need to apologise for them at all. But the first is, the, the woman at the end, I do this kind of generic English country accent, which is sort of more West Country than Essex, rural Essex. I don't mean like um, the only way is Essex, that... Uh, can't accent. I mean the sort of rural Essex folk, which is more East Anglian, really, rather than London. A lot of the modern Essex is East London accent because a lot of people, when the slums were cleared in East London, moved out. And we tend to, when you go to London, it's such a big place, you tend to kind of occupy a quadrant that is something to do with your, your origin. So I suppose it's backwards. So all my friends who were northerners um, tended to live in North London. A lot of the people who I knew were Welsh lived in West London, you know, and I guess that's true. So people from Kent tended to go into South East London, but also people leaving London go into Essex. That's a historical fact. Whether they had any choice in the matter, I don't know. Somebody can correct me. And I always like, it's not even correction, it's just an adding to the information. So Marjorie was a bit of a lass, really, even though she was kind of sort of Victorian, mm, a difficult childhood, her alcoholic father her left the family and was found dead in a London street and she grew up in poverty. But enough money to grow at the Slade School of Fine Art. I mean, the Slade is, is not a place that um, people without connections or money go to. Um, somebody who's been to the Slade who's listening to the podcast can tell me that, that it's different, but that's my impression. It's like St. Martin's, isn't it? But I don't know what I'm talking about. So, And then she went to Paris. So she wrote a lot of bodice rippers, I suppose they call them set in medieval Italy and a lot of uh, historical stuff. She married a Sicilian. So she lived a, a kind of crazy life. And she, she called, she had a, married another bloke, an English bloke. And she had a child with him who she named Athelstan Charles Ethelwolf Long. Now, come on. And he became a colonial administrator. She was against war in, in the 30s. So I remember reading that she'd 
lived a wild life of, as, a, as a wild woman. Some of the stories we did, the housekeeper, we haven't done, but I will do, is uh, I think it, her dark mistress, the dark mistress, and it's about a, a ghostly school teacher. It's a fantastic story, actually. So a lot of her stories are good. When I say they're modern, the structure is really modern. So if you get an older ghost story, even somebody like M.R. James, it doesn't have this modern feel. And I think the ghost story in the early 20th century was influenced by the whodunit. So a twist is required in a modern story. It, oh, that's what we want. That's what we like. You know, people like O. Henry, who's a famous short story writer for his twists. So it became, it becomes something we like. So we're set up. So how is this set up? First of all, you've got to, you can't just twist it at the end without any warning because the reader then goes, well, that didn't make any sense. But if you plant a seed, it's the old Chekhov thing, isn't it? If you're going to use a gun in the fourth act, plant it in the first, let the audience see it in the first act. And so we mentioned the ghost and we, we hear about the Sewell, uh, Colonel Sewell, I think, James. I think he's a colonel. I don't want to demote him or, in fact, promote him. So when we get there, we have that seed planted, but we couldn't reasonably know any more because we're given no more information. It's not like, I mean, that's about all we've got. So she goes there. And, of course, um, the, 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 the imagery is fantastic. The bleak, lonely place in the Essex marshes has to remind one of the, the Woman in Black by Susan Hill, which, of course, is a later story than this one. Perhaps Susan Black was influenced by this. Susan Black? There's, a, there's an amalgamation. Susan Hill was influenced by this particular story, Crown Derby Plate. You remember I talk about how a ghost story, a monster story, has to have a sin? And I guess the sin in this is her greed, isn't it? It's not a massive sin, and she escapes without punishment, so it's not necessarily, apart from having a bit of a shock, a punishment is her fright, but, um, and the smell, I suppose. But, you know, she, it's not a massive sin, but it is nevertheless a, 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 the acquisitiveness and collectiveness. You know, why does she want this thing? So that's the sin, I think. The setup is that there's a ghost and we're given clues. You know, this woman, as we believe, sleeps in the garden, is wearing what looks like a, a dirty shroud with white socks. And so we're given these clues and the, as the clues mount and our, he, our heroine pushes them aside, you know, oh, well, it must be a health nut. Because, of course, you've got to remember people doing crazy things for their health. I'm going to talk about this later, actually. It's not new. So you think the health fads are new, but they're not. And I can imagine people like the Bloomsbury set indulging in health fads. I, I've got so many. I nearly, nearly told you a story about Lindisfarne Castle. We went to see the castle there not long ago. And the Bloomsbury set, Strachey used to go, Lytton Strachey used to go, then he hated it. But the exhibition was so well done, it was really human. Anyway, so if you are around Lindisfarne, it's a great place to go anyway, of course. But so health fads, yeah, there we are. So she puts that off as this being some kind of health nut, which is kind of amusing, really. And I think Bowen probably intended it to be a, a jolt of humour, because there is a vein of humour running through this story, which is always nice. I always like that juxtaposition of horror and humour. And I think you can have both horror and humour, if done well, together in a way that doesn't detract from the horrific nature of the horror or the humorous nature of the humour. If you do it well, you can, you can have both in full measure, you know. Anyway, we're given loads of clues. The, as I say, the other thing, I, I chose the um, country voice, the generic English country voice. Also, I did do the colonel's voice slightly high-pitched because we were told, we led to believe that it was a woman. If I'd done it in a kind of gruff, masculine way, then you, you would have gone, ah, they would have given the game away, basically, and I didn't want to give the game away. So I did it in a kind of a, a neutral 
voice of slightly high pitch. But there we are. That was just a choice. And then, of course, we, as with many of these things, we suss this before the end, before the heroine does. And we, I've talked about this many times where we have the, the, the suspense of us knowing more than the, the protagonist in the story. And then when the twist is revealed, we go, aha. We don't go, hey, it makes no sense. We go, aha. Yeah, and that's what you need. So I was going to say the, the setup, the only thing I, I kind of got interrupted from saying by myself was the language, the dreary setting. She talks about the, the, the corpses of the fruit trees crucified on their nails because you know the habit was to, with pear trees and things like that. Is it to sp- espalier them and you put them up against a wall and they live on the uh, on wooden frames against the stone wall? I suppose it helps the fruit and it gets more sunshine. I don't really know. It's not an area of expertise, but I've seen it when I've gone around kind of National Trust properties that uh, this is what they do. So, yeah, so she kind of uses those words, the dreariness, the crucifixion, the ghost, and it all builds up because what we know is even if you use a word that is related to an image, we're triggering that image even if we don't say it. So we say crucified fruit trees and we're, we're thinking of corpses even though we don't say the word, you know, it triggers it, triggers it. Okay, there we are. I was going to tell you about, before I finish, I was going to tell you about uh, health freaks. So my friend Steve, every month or so I meet up with Steve. We usually go for a coffee. We used to go for a drink of alcohol, but we've um, we retreated into coffee. When I, have, I go out with him and drink pounds of loads of water gold, about four, and I'd be like, ooh. And then I would go, we decided we we're going to go for coffee. So I would drink flat whites, like three flat whites, and I'm whizzing with those. And uh, so I don't know which is worse, really. But this particular week, Last Tuesday, I had shade for the day, so I took shade down. We went up a fell, sail fell, which is very nice. And shade was very interested in the sheep, but um, I kept her on her lead, of course. I don't want her to get shot, and I don't want the sheep to be hurt either. But when they run away, kind of triggers some predator behaviour. I-, I told you that when I was on this um, four-day, I don't know what it was, retreat in the woods, a guy there, Jason, from Way of the Buzzard, was saying that if you want to be with mammals, you mustn't look at them because they see two-eyed, you know, like we as predators and dogs and all predators have two forward-facing eyes. So when a prey animal sees two eyes facing forward, because they have eyes on either side of their head, when they see two eyes facing forward, then they get worried because that's predator. So if you look at them, they're going predator. So anyway, and Shade looks at them and they go predator and they run away and then she chases them. But she doesn't chase them because she's on the lead. Okay, so don't worry about that. I don't want you to get yourself worried that Shade was chasing sheep because she wasn't. She's a good girl. Steve said that um, we, Shade has a game with me called a tug stick, as I call it. She gets a stick and then won't let me have it. She comes up and taunts me with it. And she, Steve says, we're walking along, she doesn't think you're the alpha. And Sheila said this as well. So I'm not, I'm Shade's pack mate. I'm not her boss. So she doesn't do stuff that I tell her to do, but we have a lot of fun and we're great friends. But I think I quite kind of prefer that because I like being people's friends. Anyway, this isn't anything about the health nuts. So this particular day, you've got to imagine, we go for a walk up a fan, we walk to the lake and we stand by the lake. Steve and I talk about philosophy and we're both interested in meditation and the nature of reality and all that stuff. And we come from a kind of, I'm, I'm more sort of Vedantic Hindu stuff because I did transcendental meditation, you know, I still do. And he's more Buddhist. So we talk about these things from, you know, the idea of emptiness. Anyway, that's getting off piste here. But this particular day, I remember it's May, but the lake was 
cold. So he was trying to persuade me. He's got this Wim Hof book. He insists on calling him Wim, but it's Dutch, so it's Wim. You know, I can't, I'm a bit peculiar about my pronunciation. So I keep calling him Wim. I'm not going to correct him, but he is wrong. So he was trying to get me to go in the lake because I don't know if you know about this cold, cold water therapy. Uh, He's supposed to go in freezing water and just tolerate it. So anyway, I'm like, man, I'm not sure about this. I'd taken my swimming trunks, but it was raining and it wasn't raining, but it was cold and gray and typical English spring. And the water's come down from the fell, so it's snow melt water. So he went in and stood there with three minutes with his hat on. I got a photograph of him and then came out and shivered a lot. And he's very thin as well. So I'm like, I'm not doing that. But he persuaded me to try this cold water therapy. So today after my hot shower, I thought, okay, here we go. And I turned the shower to cold. And it was <laughs> awful. It was like unbearably shocking. And I'm like, and I'm supposed to stay in there for 15 seconds. I possibly managed 15 seconds. I think I managed like 10 and I just couldn't bear it. I had to come out. And then I thought, no, I'm going back in again. And um, I did. So talking about health freaks who live in the garden, that's me. I'm going to say to Sheila, I'm not living in a house anymore. I'm going to live outside on the bit of rough ground at the back with the, the rats. But listen, the cats, black cat, and there's a couple of other cats up the way. They keep the rats under control. Shay hasn't seen black cats since. It's a kind of that relationship isn't going anywhere, I don't think. Anyway, so there you are. Marjorie Bowen, The Crown China Plate. A beautiful story recommended by one of my members, Yumi Tong. So you too can recommend stories. This is, this is my selling point. You could become a member. Hooray! You could do it on Patreon. You can do it on YouTube. Probably I would prefer you to do it on Patreon, actually. That seems to work better for me, that system. So members get various perks, including we, I can talk to them more on Patreon. We'd have t- more kind of to and fro conversations. But also there are members only videos, about 42, and you get to um, recommend a story, which in due course I will get around to reading out. Okay. Hope you're all well. Tomorrow's another cold shower. I wonder how long this will last. There will be a, 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 a podcast episode where I go, I've given up on the cold showers. But maybe I will become a convert and you'll see me wandering around in my underpants in the snow making videos about that. Why not? Mm, Lots of reasons why not. But yeah, anyway, bye bye. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?